Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the number one podcast in banking. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The banking industry has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to transform legacy business models to become more competitive and more resilient during economic downturns. By integrating data, analytics, advanced technologies, automation, and an upskilled workforce, banks and credit unions can become more future-ready and agile in a crisis. These firms will be able to take these advantages of unique marketplace opportunities going forward, making them stronger and more resilient. I am fortunate to be joined today on the Bank Transform podcast by Ron Shevlin, Chief Research Officer from Cornerstone Advisors. We discuss strategies and tactics financial institutions must take today to become digitally mature tomorrow. You know, some say a recession is coming while others will say it's already here. Financial institutions, no matter what, need to develop a strategy that recession-proof and future-proof their current business models. And it has to be done now. If the economy takes a deeper dive, inaction will make it harder to catch up and will put financial institutions further behind the curve as to where the industry is going. It will also make it hard to keep pace with the change that's impacting the industry today and forward. Welcome to the show again, Ron. So to get us started, what do you see as the biggest threat to the banking industry as we might be entering a a pretty tough recessionary time? And how prepared do you see banks and credit unions today? Jim, how you doing? Great to be back. Thanks again for having me. Uh, Before I even get to your question, we got to go back to your intro you said that you know some think the recession's on the way and others think that's here. You know, there are others that don't think we're necessarily going to have a recession. You forgot the third group altogether. <laughs> don't know if you saw, but um, the CEO of Truist is, seems to be on the more optimistic side of things and doesn't see any short-term problems and you know just thinks that we've got a mild recession in the midterm. I think I hope I'm not misquoting him on on that one. Um, so, you know, we're, there's a third group there. I don't want you to ignore the third group. Yep. Um, and then the other thing to get to your question, why I tell you, you, you really get me on these things. We've got to boil it down to the biggest problem. I mean, look, there's a bunch of things that, um, that, that the, the industry needs to do. I'm very hard pressed to kind of boil it down to one, but the biggest or one of the biggest concerns and things to, to kind of wrestle with here is the, the building the, the demand and the pipeline for loans. It's the driver of profitability in most financial institutions. It's going to be the thing that's going to be most at risk uh, in a downturn uh, if the, in the economy is both the, the demand and the quality of loans. And with, without a, uh, you know, a strong pipeline, a strong backlog, and a strong portfolio from a loan perspective, uh, that's just going to drive so many other decisions for the, for the, for the banks and credit unions. I, I, you know, I'm not sure. Is that the most important? I don't know, but it's got to be up there. You know, and, and from your research, I mean, you, you get a great feel for how organizations are doing, how prepared they are, you know, what, what works, what doesn't work. What are some of the characteristics that you see within organizations that are right now the most prepared for the future? And and, and again, to your point, be it recessionary, non-recessionary times, organizations are prepared, are prepared. But are there are there certain characteristics that you see as being transcendent upon over anything else with regard to 
how prepared organization is? Is it leadership? Is it core systems? What what do you see as being the, the major characteristics? I guess, Jim, my mind goes to two two things in particular. One kind of being a you know more hard quantitative-ish, measurable type of thing. Uh, and the other being a softer, more qualitative, less measurable thing. Uh, on the less, less measurable side, I, I think one of those characteristics is clarity of strategy and, and focus and understanding who the customer uh, or member base really is. You know, I look at an organization like USAA, always kind of amazed, you know, just how well they execute. And I think a good reason for that is because they have in their sites a very clear picture of who their member is and who they serve. Now, it's not that they, you know, every member is homogenous in that case, but, you know, I think of it as a bullseye. And, and in the center of the bullseye is the active deployed military member. In the next ring is the active non-deployed military member. And the ring after that is the non-active non-deployed military member. And then it's military family members, but they've got that, that bullseye. And I think for any financial institution that's starting to get affected by an economic downturn, I think those that are best positioned to deal with that are those that just know who it is they serve, need to go after, and need to, to focus on. I, I think the other side and the more measurable, harder side are those institutions that, uh, and this is going to get us into a, another discussion, uh, which is a nicer word for argument, uh, around the degree to which they've accomplished some level of digital transformation. I think the ones that have done the best job so far of you know, providing digital account, account opening, digital banking capabilities, uh, I think go into this recession or downturn in the economy, whatever it turns out to be, or whatever it turns out to be, up or down, um, on, a, on a stronger set of legs because they've, they've dealt with some of the efficiency and effectiveness issues uh, around delivery. And I just think that means that uh, if they've made the investments already, then they're going to be having a little bit easier time dealing with economic downturn. You know, it's interesting, Ron, you and I go way back in the financial services industry. And, you know, it's been a long time since we've had what could be a down economy, but even if it's not a down economy, a time when really the cost structure of financial institutions is, is really being put to a test. I think in the past, when the few times that I remember a, a deep dive in the economy, you know, financial institutions first and foremost cut costs. They they immediately cut costs across the board. Marketing became a luxury as opposed to necessity, and basically it was efficiency and cost cutting. I'm wondering, and I'm going to ask you this: is is this still the best overarching strategy? It's still probably part of the strategy. But when you look at digital transformation, when you look at core systems, when you look at um, customer experience, when you look at knowing your customers, all the different elements, is it going to take more than just cost cutting to really be in the position you need to be in the new competitive battlefield in what could be a, a difficult economy? In my mind, the answer to this is, is just really kind of complex and complicated. Um, in the past, I think there's been a very strong focus among banks and really companies in almost every industry. There was a downturn is to cut back and cut costs. But I think what the what the industry has kind of recognized with proliferating uh, channels, uh, you know, different mechanisms for customer and, and business uh, contact, 
that you have to make the investments in better upgraded capabilities to deliver services more efficiently, which means you have to invest in cost cutting. Uh, because the environment calls for just more and more costs as we grow more and more delivery touch points. So smart banks have recognized that we actually have to make an investment in delivery capabilities, enable to then reduce costs and, and have uh, you know more efficient delivery. If a bank is go, this is why I said I, I think the those that have accomplished some degree of digital transformation go into this with a, an advantage, because you're not just simply going to be able to let go of people enough to to to, to drive uh, cost reduction going going into this. Um, and I can't imagine that right now that's a palatable uh, strategy for a lot of banks as they're struggling to hire more people. Uh, that they're going to let people go. That's it, it. Seems kind of kind of ridiculous right now. So I think we're in a in a stage where this recession's different now. Look, there is there are some things though that have happened. You know, in the past really 15 years or so. Uh, you know, thanks to the 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 down the, the crisis back in you know the 2008 2009 timeframe. Um, you know, banks today have um, are, are required to keep more capital and keep more higher quality capital. So I think that that helps buffer the shock a little bit. And I think we're also going into this recession uh, with a, uh, you know, with strong employment, stronger employment numbers. I don't think we're going to see a real uh, decrease in, in unemployment rates um, or increase in unemployment rates is probably the, 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 the down, you know, the negative side of that. Right. So, I mean, that helps a, a little bit. Uh, but the inflationary pressures um, are are kind of the, the, the killer in, in this in this economic situation. So um, it, you know it's tough for banks. I think the ones that have made the investment in the past five years, not just two years, not the ones that are scrambling post pandemic, but the ones that have you know been consistently investing and in upgrading their digital delivery uh, are the banks and credit unions that are going into this recession on a on a but a stronger, stronger set of legs. You know, it's interesting because as, as you're saying what you just said, it reminds me that the, the COVID crisis really put financial institutions on notice that their cost structure, their delivery structure, the way they open new accounts, there's a lot of things that had to be fixed. And so in many cases, as you said at the very beginning, that digital transformation process, that, that whole attitude of fixing what's been broken has started really well before the economy was was suffering. And, and what I've seen, and, and we saw it this week in some announcements made by PNC, where they're going to possibly transform 1,000 branches into automated branches, which we can get into discuss on whether or not there should be branches all in those cases. But I also had a great discussion with a financial institution that's $50 billion, a good mid-sized organization, very competitive, that's also looking at closing finance, closing branches, closing distribution networks, really keeping on plugging along and saying, we've got to move our customer base into a digital environment that's good for them. So we've got to fix our digital delivery, but we also need to move people into that, that, that form of doing banking. So maybe a lot of these organizations are already got a little bit of a runway they're on, which is good. I'm, I'm glad to see that. I'm glad to see that overall financial institutions are looking at this. But one thing that's really interesting is that, and I'm, I, I'm sure you've seen it as well, is you can very quickly see which organizations are going to be best positions based on the leadership thinking. 
Is top leadership really willing to make the major changes that are needed for digital transformation to be future ready? Or are they just doing what others do to do the least amount? I mean, Jamie Dimon got ridiculed for putting a ton of money into R&D, but people within the industry were applauding it because uh, people like us were applying it basically because it still wasn't enough, but at least with somebody saying, you know, we can't keep doing the same thing and expecting better results, let alone the same results. Um, You know, when when you look at the organizations as a whole, do you think that, you know, the part of the banking industry that we, we talk about, about a lot is the fintech firms? With the possible recession coming and with the, the sloping downward of fintech funding by venture capital, capital firms, how much of a threat is the whole funding mechanism right now to fintech firms in general? And how much is this? We, we saw this coming possibly, but how big of a, a, a challenge is this? And on the opposite side, could this be an opportunity for traditional banks to actually possibly acquire or at least partner with fintech firms to upgrade their capabilities? Yeah, so a couple of things to that, Jim. First, I think there's a real parallel uh, between the banks and the fintechs. I said that the banks, and when I say banks, you know, let's say financial institutions, I don't want to exclude any of the credit yeah. unions, but sorry, credit unions, I'm getting a little tired of saying banks and credit unions, banks and credit unions. So banks, financial members, institutions. Members and customers. Yeah, exactly. Right, members and customers. Don't ever want to leave them out. Uh, I said there was a, I think there's a parallel. I said that I think that the banks that are going into this best position are those that already made um, investments in digitization and those that kind of know their customer base. And I think there's a parallel kind of structure on the fintech side. Uh, I think the fintechs that have been spending their money wisely uh, in terms of building capabilities, marketing, and those that have a, a good business model to generate revenue are going into this downturn stronger. Um, look, markets move up and down, valuations move up and down. Um, yes, it's bad news for a chime who you know was ready to go public and then kind of pulled back on it. But here's the thing: I don't don't knock them for pulling back on their IPO plans, but I'm not sure they're one of the the fintechs well positioned for this downturn. Um, not because they haven't spent their money wisely. I I wouldn't wouldn't criticize them for that. But on the business model side, heavy reliance on interchange is is not a good place to be right now, uh, nor I think ever, but especially right now. But I think the fintechs that <laughs> Um, you know, have been a, that are going into this, having spent their money wisely, having built a business model that's sustainable for the long longer term, um, will number one survive this better and probably even attract the limited and lesser capital that's out there because they're in a stronger position. I think the fintechs that may suffer are those that are you know really at the startup uh, seed stage. Uh, and you know may not have proven out capabilities, and just I think in general the VC market's a little bit more pessimistic about fintech in general, so they may suffer a little bit. So the last part of your question about the opportunity from the banking side, uh, I think the banks have been pursuing the partnerships for a good couple couple years now. I, I think the potential benefit to them, Jim, uh, might be on the human resource, human capital side of the coin. As fintechs start to feel the funding pinch and start letting go, people, uh, these may be people that the the banks can hire. They've had a hell of a time trying to hire anybody in the past couple of years. Um, And especially as the fintechs have been 
you know, either throwing out a lot of money or, you know, dangling a lot of equity at folks. And now with that being turned down, that makes that a lot less attractive for candidates. And so it might actually be a, a boon to the banks from a hiring perspective. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because I, I wrote that in a recent article that I, I agree fully with what you just said there. In addition, I think, you know, it's not that it hasn't been said before with digital transformation overall in banks, but I think more than ever, to, to achieve the speed and scale that's necessary to be future ready, be prepared no matter what the economic situation is, the importance of third-party solution providers is increasing every day, not only because they have talent, but they also have the experience. I, I liken it to the, the GPS system like car. They have the experience through, in many cases, hundreds of clients on things that can go wrong, things that can go right. So instead of a financial institution, let's say, building their own core Tra- you know, core, cap- core capability on the infrastructure basis or working on data and analytics and, and analysis to be able to build better customer experiences or even the automated back office. This, this really takes experience, but in order to do it at speed and scale, how important do you think now compared to even two years ago, are these third-party providers that have run this race for a while? Uh, so, Jim, it's funny. I, I, you know, you speak a lot at conferences. I don't probably speak as much, but uh, I try to get out there. And when I do, I, I kind of, I, I don't. You probably have like a stump speech too, and you know, the one that uh, you know you you feel more com- most comfortable doing, and you know, try to whatever you're wherever you're speaking, you, you, you try to work that kind of stump speech into it. Well, I have one too, and then the title of my stump speech is the collaborative future of banking. Um, and if you'll give me a minute, I'll kind of give you a quick background on this. I, I've yep. done this presentation a couple times this year so far, and I use um, the Wizard of Oz as kind of my storyline. And I, I pretend that I, I tell the, the group, well, I'm, I'm doing a remake of the Wizard of Oz. It's going to be called the FinTech Wizard of Oz. And um, I go through this whole thing about Wizard of Oz. And then at the end, I go, so, all right, why am I telling you all this? And I said, it's because The Wizard of Oz is an allegory for the banking industry right now. The Wizard of Oz was a story about how four entities, four characters came together to help each other achieve their very vast and diverse goals and objectives. They couldn't have done it without each other. And in very many ways, that's an allegory for the banking industry where we have, you know, on one side, the financial institutions uh, who really can't get it done today without fintech partnerships or the help of the traditional vendors, as well as the involvement of parties like you know the regulatory environment. So y- you can't get it done without the help of of partnerships. And while look, you know, there's always going to be consultants out there saying, oh, you know, data analytics is the most important thing. Customer service is the most important thing. Well, at the core of all of these capabilities is the realization you can't build and improve these capabilities unless you're partnering, using other third parties, you know, whatever it is, vendors, I don't care what the, re- the relationship is. The reality is you can't do it alone. 
I mean, even J.P. Morgan Chase, right. um, a, a gazillion bedillion asset level bank, just hired Peggy Mango to run her, their their fintech partnerships. Even they're not going it alone. So if they can't go it alone, you better believe a three billion or ten billion dollar community bank or credit union can't go it alone. So I kind of see this, Jim, as sort of the core new competency that a financial institution has to build: the ability to partner. If you don't have that ability to to vet, to identify, vet, negotiate, deploy, and scale partnerships, you're at a serious disadvantage even before you get to all the important things that you like to talk about around data and analytics and digital delivery and all those things. That's just at the next level. There's a level below it, and that's the competency to partner. Um, and so to me, that's that's the new core competency. Well, and what's interesting, Ron, you know, it goes back now, gosh, three years to 2019. I was at the Financial Brand Forum, our our event in what used to be May, now it's November this year. But I was amazed that there was just much talking going on between vendors, solution providers, as well as between solution providers and financial institutions. And what became very apparent is these organizations are doing everything possible to find ways to work together with other partners that are going to be part of this mix to build a better future and make it easier for financial institutions to engage. So there isn't a, a solution provider out there that can't work with all four, any of the four core core solution providers, the core um, processing companies. In addition, they all can work with each other to different degrees even if they're competitive sets, and and it, you know, you've seen it because you, you work with these as many as I as much as I do, that it's really admirable how these organizations have said, you know what, we we can take data in any form and make it work for you. We can take any problem you have and we can compartmentalize it so that we don't have to have you bite off a big piece. In fact, most of these organizations now, more than ever, can bring you a solution that you can get your toes wet and bring a positive ROI in the same year you deploy it so that you can justify future investments. This, this is a new environment because it used to be it was all one way or the other. You had to build the whole big thing at once. I think that's really encouraging for the industry. And I'm, you know, you've, you've written about it as well, about how the whole environment of partnerships has changed so much to the benefit of financial institutions. You know, another thing, you know, another thing, and and to do a pivot here, you know, we've had, you and I have had several conversations recently on the importance of embedded banking and um, banking as a service and innovation overall. With a potential recession on the horizon, why is embedded finance and innovation, investment in innovation, even more important to not only the customer, but to non-financial institutions as well as banks and credit unions. Jim, before I delve into that, let's make sure we're on the same page from a definitional perspective. Um, I see embedded finance as the integration of financial services uh, into the products, apps, deliveries, processes, whatever, of non-financial institutions. Yep. Uh, and those financial institutions might be fintechs, uh, who are you know financially oriented, but they could be brands like Uber and Lyft, Nike, Walmart, whoever. Okay. Yep. Banking as a service is what the financial institution provides to the non-financial institution in order to deliver those services. Now, innovation is just another circle. Much more general. That's <laughs> either encompasses it, touches it, abuts it, I don't know what, but 
in banking as a service and embedded finance may be examples of innovation, but I don't let's let's not go there in in that you know in, in that yep. realm. So um, why is this important to, today? Well, for a couple reasons, and it always almost always starts with consumer demand. It's because consumers want it. They want the level of convenience. They have trusted relationships with either fintechs or non-financial brands that they do business with. And the interest in in getting financial-related services from these non-financial institutions is very high. I got a report that'll come out. Today's, uh, oh, I don't, we won't say what today's date is, just whenever you, uh, you, you run this. But, you know, by summertime 2022, uh, this report will be out. We we surveyed um, 2,500 consumers about their interest in getting uh, financial services from brands like Ford and GM and Home Depot and and Xbox and various different you know consumer categories. And while the level of interest definitely differs by 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 category of business, there is very strong demand for a wide range of services. Not surprisingly. You know, uh, a lot of consumers would love to have a payment account with an Xbox so that they can do in-game purchases and payments. Uh, on a Home Depot side, it's much more interesting, you know, home equity loan or something like that, obviously. So there's huge interest on it, you know, in it from the consumer perspective. And as a result, that that cre- creates demand that the bank should be paying attention to. But from the bank perspective, Jim, the growth opportunities is just absolutely immense and huge. You know, there are relatively small banks in this country that most consumers have never heard of that have millions of customers, or I should say millions of accounts, because the customer is really the brand. That's who they're serving. It's the brand's customers who are the customers. To the bank, it's the accounts, and they're able to grow much greater and faster than they could ever dream of growing if they were simply serving a narrow geographic community. But even, and just as importantly, if not more importantly, they're able to grow that business at a acquisition cost that is orders of magnitude lower than what they would have to spend in order to grow to that size business, whether it was in within their geography or beyond it. Um, And then on top of that is the revenue opportunity is greater because there's a bunch of different services, remember, that they're now providing to the brand or the fintech, um, who for at least right now is a little bit less sensitive to the, I mean, they're going to negotiate the best deal they can. But, you know, this is not where the the government's going to get involved every time, you know, that guy in Illinois is going to jump out of his seat every time a bank levies a $1 a month charge on somebody, but in the bass world, that's not happening. So it's just a more conducive environment uh, to grow, to grow profitably and to, to grow fast. So, uh, you know, this is, this is just going to be absolutely huge for, for a lot of banks. And many of them are, are, are thinking about it, if not getting into it. Uh, I do think there is a limit, though, to how I mean, look, we have thousands of financial institutions today. I don't think thousands of financial institutions can be BAS providers. Um, and and so, you know, there there's a decision they have to make. And in my mind, just give me 30 more seconds here, Jim, because I'm going to put out there. I, I think, you know, I, I'm not I'm not the crypto guy or the Bitcoin guy, but, you know, the, the concept of the hard fork. 
in in you know cryptocurrencies and in Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, and in my mind, I think banking is moving towards a hard fork, which is either moving towards embedded banking, where you're really a B2B to C player, or towards embedded fintech, where you are embedding more and more fintech services into your banking environment. There's nothing to say that a bank couldn't pursue both strategies, right? Uh, but you you got to be really good at one of the two. And I think we're moving to the environment where you you're you're you know you're not at the end of the road if you're a banker or a credit union, but you're hitting the fork in the road where you've got to decide: Are you going to pursue an embedded banking strategy or an embedded fintech strategy? Well, you know what's really interesting too is. It doesn't matter what size organization you are. Um, I'm going to do a shameless plug here, but a couple of weeks back, we did an interview with the gentleman from Webster Bank, and he came from Sterling Bank, which they merged together. But it was amazing that this, what I'll call midsize organization, $50, $60 billion, really has an aggressive strategy towards embedded banking and BASS. And, it, and it's interesting because they're doing it so successfully and a little bit of both what you said. In some cases, they're embedding their services within third-party non-financials. In the other sense, they're getting some great innovation insights from fintech firms that are providing them services that they can provide their customers. So it becomes a scale and an innovation strategy. And it's, it's something that once an organization starts to build a mindset along this, it falls right into the whole digital banking mindset. This wouldn't have been possible without digital banking and the whole digital environment. But it, it's really exciting because it doesn't matter what size you are. And, you know, scale is a matter of degree. You know, a scale to a $60 billion or $50 billion organization is a whole lot different than it is to a Chase or a Wells Fargo. So I, I think it provides tremendous opportunities, you said, not only from a scale of customer base that you're serving, but even from a revenue standpoint, from a possibility of new fees, new revenue models completely different than what had been done in the past. So we'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at Microsoft.com backslash financial services. So, Ron, in the research you're doing at Cornerstone, how do traditional financial services organizations remain relevant in a very evolving financial ecosystem? Uh, Jim, I I mentioned this a little bit earlier in the conversation. I think you're giving me a good chance to kind of uh, reintroduce the concept of, you know, the, the, the customer or member focus. You know, the, the, the question, how do you remain relevant, uh, begs another question, which is relevant to whom? To everybody? That's, that, that, that just doesn't, doesn't play that way. So you've got to really figure out who are you intending to be relevant to? You know, going, re- referencing our embedded finance uh, discussion or banking as a service discussion, what's interesting is that more and more the relevance might be to, to another business, an intermediary providing financial services than necessarily, you know, some some end consumer group. But for most financial institutions, banks and credit unions today, but, you know, the question is to whom do you, you want to be relevant to? Uh, and then after figuring that out and figuring out the, the segments that you're serving, 
you know, I, we can get into an argument about this, and I and I know you've you've uh, commented on some comments that I've made or things I've written in the past. I, I think it has the, the the answer to the question about the relevance has a lot more to do now with product design and delivery than it does web design or app design. Yeah. Um, you can have the you know the slickest design and the you know the best kind of best looking website out there, but reality is if the product isn't delivering the 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 value that the consumer is looking for, you know. And when I look at you know some of the fintechs like like a Chime, like a Square Cash App, uh, Yada, if you're familiar with them, uh, I'm very much convinced that they're not going after. Uh, my age, because if they were going after people my age, they probably would have been called yada, yada, yada. If I had found a firm like that, I would have put all my money into them right off the bat, but they decided to just call themselves yada. But my point, uh, to get back on point, is that when you look at their product offerings, is it a checking account? Not really. Is it a savings account? Not really. Is it a brokerage account? Not really. But they're taking capabilities things that customers want, consumers want from a value perspective, and kind of glomming them all together into a single product offering that include non-traditional things like uh, rewards management, subscription management, just other things that's money related, but it doesn't fit into the the traditional boundaries of what a product, you know, the the, the products the banks and credit unions have been offering. So that's why I I think what's what's key to being relevant is being flexible, innovative uh, in the product delivery and not just sort of, you know, trying to turn the needle on online banking design or mobile banking design. You you obviously have to do the basics, right? But to your point, you know, to be relevant, it means relevant to the people you want to serve. And you it's getting more and more antiquated if you're trying to serve everybody with the, the same array of services that your competitor down the street is doing. You know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of both PayPal on my business side as well as Acorns on my personal side saying they've come up with solutions that fit my needs perfectly and so much better than my traditional financial institutions have done it. And you, you brought up some other examples. I think it's important for us to realize that it's because these firms have done what they do better than anybody else for a specific market that that is asking for those services. And more and more, you know, if you don't pick out a specific segment that you want to serve well, you're going to serve nobody very well because you're going to have watered down services, as we've had in the past, that don't specifically answer anything that's a value added service that's not offered elsewhere. So, you know, you look at so many financial institutions of all sizes, and this can be kind of like a, a, a little bit of a wishy-washy question, but hang on for it. Is there any characteristic, you know, you, especially since COVID, where you say this organization gets it and they're going to be moving forward and, and going to be a winner, most likely, and this organization, boy, they're, they're struggling for more reasons than one. Are there any characteristics that you find in a legacy financial institution that you go, you know what, they found, to a certain degree at least, the magic sauce? Jim, I man, I really hate to sound like a broken record, but when you ask me that, the, okay, who come? I think I'm going in my mind. Who comes to mind? Um, I, again, I, I you, USAA as a good example. Another yeah. good example for me is 
Los Angeles Police Federal Credit Union, not a, an organization that I think a lot of people know of or think of, but they've been very innovative in their product design in terms of understanding that they serve the law enforcement community. And that law enforcement community has some very unique financial needs and, and really money management needs. And, you know, you know, this is a touchy subject, but, you know, this is a, a community that um, tends to, you know, ha have some downsides. It's a dangerous job being a policeman. Um, they've been very innovative in terms of how they design loans when a you know, new police officer joins the force and needs to spend a lot of money to to buy equipment and things like that. So they've been very uh, innovative in, in terms of those loans. Uh, in terms of loan forgiveness in case of, you know, death or, or you know, some other tragedy. Um, but they understand that community. And what also strikes me as being really innovative about them is they think about, well, we've built these capabilities for the members of our credit union. Um, there are a lot of law enforcement credit unions out in this country. How can we take what we've learned and capabilities we've developed and, and bring it out there? Maybe it's a CUSO, maybe it's some other type of format, but they understand that, that, that market that they serve and are innovative from a product delivery and a growth perspective. On the other side of the equation, I am certainly not going to mention anybody's name, but when I think about the ones that you know aren't well positioned for Jim, it tends to be both the community banks and credit unions that have the narrow geographic focus uh, in markets where there's no protection or unique need. Uh, if you're a bank out in West Texas, uh, great. You, you know, you've got a very heavy oil and gas industry focus. You've got a lot of unique needs of a lot of the members in that community, both from a consumer and business perspective. But if you're in, like in the suburbs of New York or Boston or Washington, D.C., a uh, very different kind of set of, you know, uh, of, of customer base in that geography, a lot more competition. Uh, and I think it's the the financial institutions that are are just too wrapped up in geographic focus that are are the ones that are 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 going to struggle and suffer in the next couple of years. You know, it's interesting along the same lines. If you don't know, if you're not committed to the base that you're going to be the best at, you're really not committed to any base. And and it and you know it maybe is oversimplifying it, but it really becomes a leadership issue. It's interesting as you you mentioned a firm. I'm going to mention one as well. Star One Credit Union. I visited them out in Silicon Valley, and they're a relatively small organization, but they have committed to be on the cutting edge of delivering digital services better than anybody else. Their leadership has cut through all the red tape to make it so the digital account opening is as fast as I've seen any organization of any size do. Digital loan applications, same thing. They're first in line on, on rapid and, and immediate payments. They're looking at everything and saying, we're in a very digital environment we are serving a very digital consumer. We've got to build an organization that is the best at that for our size. And again, it's a scaling issue. So they don't have to acquire every person in the Silicon Valley to make a difference for their organization. But again, the underlying theme is you need the leadership to say, we're going to cut through anything to make sure we serve our primary customer better than anybody else, which is what your example of the Los Angeles Police Credit Union and, and certainly USAA, you know. You know, I'm gonna shift finally on something completely off everything else we discussed, but very under 
under uh, foundational to everything in banking. You know, research has shown, and your research as well as ours, that there's a decreasing trust in traditional banking and increasing trust in big tech and fintech firms. Does the impact of a potential recession give an opportunity to help improve trust or actually reduce trust in traditional financial institutions or both? Uh, well, first, I want to see your numbers because, uh, you know, I look at the JP, uh, JP, the uh, JD Power um, numbers, and they seem to be going up in terms of satisfaction among mid-sized financial institutions and, and, and trust. I just think that's a very ephemeral type of thing that goes up and down with, almost with the economy. But uh, I don't doubt in my mind, Jim, anything that um, the f- a downturn in the economy gives traditional financial institutions a huge opportunity to, to improve that trust. And, and actually, anybody does, because in a downturn is when you know going the extra mile to, to take care of your customer or member base uh, is what makes you know makes a difference. And you know, it's a weird thing in, in consumers, people's minds. It's not just consumers, but it's in people's minds. It's they'll remember the things. Uh, a couple of years ago, actually, this is more than a couple of years ago. This is going back a while. But I was still with Forrester Research at the time, so that tells you how far back it was. Um, I had done some work and wrote about this, what I called the stories that loyal customers tell. And the idea was that it isn't about like the 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 interest rate you got or the price you got on you know a product or a service it was something much more qualitative and hard to describe uh, and a great example of that was i had actually got a call from a reporter from crm magazine um, who said you know i was reading the stuff you were writing it really resonated with me my partner and i were looking to uh, adopt a child we got a call from the adoption agency that there was a child in china and we needed a short-term loan to, 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 to pay for the trip. And she said, my bank bent over backwards to get us that loan within 24 hours. And for that, I will never you know, forget them. Well, reality is, is that you know, over time, she'll forget them. But it's that impact. And so the opportunity to, to exceed expectations you know, in the downturn, people are going to say, well, my credit score is down, my, you know, my ability and willing and my ability to, to pay back is going to be bad. Nobody's going to give me a loan. But the bank that steps up and says, nope, you know, we're going to do this for you because we believe in you kind of a thing um, is that qualitative thing that that changes people's minds. Um, and so it's the down environment that just more broadly speaking, gives any provider, whether we're talking a traditional bank, a fintech or a or a big tech company, that ability to do it. I don't see the big techs really even thinking about that, Jim, you know. Um, I, and so the, the fintechs, I think, are a little more attuned, attuned to that. But with the downturn, they're struggling to even keep and hold people. So I think this could be a big, big opportunity for, for banks to sway the uh, public uh, perception back towards them. And it certainly, and, and I meant it more in perspective of traditional banks versus fintechs. And I, th- I think you're right that, that this provides a great opportunity. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I usually look at, as you know, the glass is half, em- half full, um, if not half empty. And, and I do believe that organizations that do the right thing during this, this period, especially, and, and have done the right thing 
actually since COVID, because I think this is a transitional period that that continues what we, we saw during COVID time. But those organizations that invest wisely, that do manage costs, but really use this as an opportunity to show their customer base that they're looking out for, you know, as you know, I use the know me, look out for me and reward me. If you do that, the rewards can be greater now, as you just said, during a down economy than it would ever be during a, a, a vibrant economy when you don't have to look at these things. So Ron, Great to have you on the show again. I, I'm going to give you one last chance to, to wrap this up the way you'd like to wrap it up with regard to organizations and the response to a, uh, a potential, if not already in place, down economy. Uh, here's my take is if you're a financial institution and you're looking at the situation right now saying, gee, what do we do if there's a downturn? How should we do it? You're already too late. Uh, Oliver Wyman actually wrote a, uh, published a, a research report or a white paper back in Q1 2019 saying, what should you do if there's a, you know, a downturn or a recession? Yep. And that was the time to, to ponder this, that question, not Q2 going into Q3 2022. So, you know, if you're in that situation where you haven't planned, um, I think my advice is probably hang on. Just hang on for dear life till it, yeah. to, you know, it, but it's gonna be a rough this is ride. not the time to, yeah. it's going to be a rough ride, but hang on because you probably will make it through. It's not like this is, these are always life and death kinds of things, but it's, it's too late to, to, to respond to that. Now, uh, the banks that have, you know, gone into this and made the investments, uh, I think are the ones that are going to, you know, come on, come out on top and have a, a better, stronger competitive advantage at the other side of the, the downturn. Ron, it's always a pleasure. It's good to get back together again. It, we got to start doing this in person again. Hopefully we can do that soon. But again, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, recipient of three international awards for podcast excellence. If you enjoy what we're doing, please be sure to provide a favorable review on your favorite podcast app. Finally, be sure to catch the recent articles we're doing on financial brand and the research we're doing for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of the Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, remember, many great innovations and business transformations were born out of a time of economic crisis. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.